I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to season five of And The Writer Is with your host, Ross Golan. Before I give my spiel, I want to acknowledge the music army that listens to this podcast every week. Since starting this, the And The Writer Is community has literally changed the history of the music business by helping pass the Music Modernization Act, gotten songwriters added to Album of the Year for the Grammys, and still is advocating for positive changes for our industry on a daily basis. So thank you and congrats. Now, as you know, I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan, but today we have our first guest host, the wonderful, brilliant Hannah Karp, editorial director of Billboard, who, uh, since I've been in New York working on The Wrong Man, has graciously come in to do this incredible interview for our finale, which we did with our partner, the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And we're continuing our series where every uh, season we have at least one interview with a songwriter Hall of Famer, an inductee, or a Starlight winner. And this episode, we are featuring the music legend, inductee, and current chairman of the Songwriter Hall of Fame, Niall Rogers. As you know, the Songwriter Hall of Fame is a nonprofit organization that's based in New York, founded in 1969 by Johnny Mercer and publishers Abe Ullman and Howie Richman. So this has been around for a minute. They shine a spotlight on the accomplishments of songwriters and legacies of songwriters. Um, it's an organization that has a small board and comprised of senior executives in the industry. So the inductees and songwriters and, and publishers who vote these people in are people who know what they're talking about. These, these are truly the Songwriter Hall of Fame has the greatest writers of all time. So... The way they introduce the writers every year to this is, is from a gala that, that's hosted in New York, and it's incredible. I mean, legends like, I think last year we had Bonnie Raitt and, and uh, Justin Timberlake and Missy Elliott and, you know, Lizzo performed. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's always incredible to see the people who show up um, 
to celebrate songwriters uh, for such an organization like the Hall of Fame. So, you know, they do a few other things. So if you want to follow it, I think you should. You know, they have scholarships and they have master sessions and they have craft forums and digital initiatives. They have an award-winning online museum that honors these songwriters who've been inducted. So go check out the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Uh, Thank you guys for partnering with us again, Songwriter Hall of Fame people who are listening to this. And again... Without further ado, here is our guest host, Hannah Karp, interviewing one of the greatest writers and producers of all time, Nile Rogers. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I'm your guest host for today, Hannah Karp. I'm the editorial director of Billboard, and I am very honored to be in the same studio as our legendary guest today. A musician, producer, artist, and writer who has sold more than 500 million albums and 75 million records worldwide. He's worked with everyone from Diana Ross to Avicii to Mick Jagger, and his ear for production and writing bends genres from disco to pop to rock and to country. He's been on tour with everyone from the Jackson 5 to Sesame Street. He's headlined (laughs) Glastonbury. And he's probably responsible for creating or inspiring most of the music that has fueled the most epic all-night dance parties that have ever gone down on this earth. Um, And the writer is... Nile Rodgers! (laughs) (laughs) Nile Rodgers, songwriting and rock and roll Hall of Fame legend. So, all of those incredible accolades aside, the reason I'm especially excited to be sitting here with you is... When I was nine years old and I was in my room listening to the radio in Berkeley, California, I remember a song coming on and having that first experience of not being able to get it out of my head and desperately wanting to hear it again. And once I found out what it was, it was Rome by the B-52s. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had my mom buy me the tape and I studied the liner notes and, um, and I soon realized that you were the man behind the magic. And as I started to collect more music, it seemed like it became safe to assume that anything that was great (laughs) you had produced. (laughs) So, um, you know, the most amazing thing, though, is that 30 years later, that's that's still true. Um, But I I would love for you to take us back to the beginning and and tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up here in New York City. Um, I'm a Greenwich Village kid. I... um my parents were beatniks, and I followed in their footsteps and became a hippie. I guess just sort of did the the American counterculture thing all the way. Um, I uh, I learned music in uh, the public school system, so I was um, uh, musical. I guess on some level, uh, right from the start, uh, the first instrument I played was the flute uh, and I moved from flute to clarinet and with a number of other instruments along the way but because of my parents very sort of chaotic lifestyle um, in those days I didn't stay in one school very long so I would go to a different school and music was part of the standardized curriculum in those days so they would just assign you, assign you an instrument and you'd play that as 
poorly as everybody else in the <laughs> class. And, uh, you know, playing music as a kid was fun because it really, you, I mean, almost everybody stank, but you had a camaraderie that was fun. Yeah. And why was your parents' lifestyle chaotic? You were talking earlier about their challenging yeah, profession. Uh, yeah. Well, because uh, my, my parents grew up, um, you know, heroin was the sort of big drug in those days with the jazz community and the the sort of Greenwich Village arty community. And those were our friends, you know, Thelonious Monk and Nina Simone and Gloria Lynn and all the sort of hip jazz people. And um, and my, and believe it or not, my stepfather, my, my, my biological father was a heroin addict by choice. And he... Um, he mainly started doing it because he had money, because he worked for my stepfather's family. And because he had money, he would buy recreational drugs. And so my biological father was a heroin addict uh, by choice. My stepfather became a heroin addict because um, as a, a soldier in the uh, Korean War, he was wounded the very first day on the battlefield. Um uh, ran over a shrapnel um, uh, grenade, um, and he was blinded. He was bandaged from head to toe. Oh. And they uh, that was when they discovered the MASH unit. And the MASH unit were these mobile medical units where they believed that most soldiers who were wounded died on the battlefield from really simple injuries. Mm. And they believed that if they could get you to these MASH units, they could save these soldiers' lives. So they took my father to the MASH, MASH unit, bandaged him from head to toe because he was blinded from the shrapnel and had puncture wounds all over his body. And they fed him a morphine drip for a couple of weeks until they sent him back to the States. By the time they sent him back, he was completely addicted to morphine and heroin and stayed that way until he died. Wow. And how old were you when you realized that your family was dealing and using drugs in that way? Mm, I guess I... Well, I was aware of the symptoms, mm-hmm. but I didn't quite understand. I was really young, so I didn't, I didn't understand that it was a by that their behavioral patterns and symptoms was a byproduct of not only the culture um, and just being cool and hey, man, how you doing like that, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, the drug usage, which made them do everything in slow motion. You know, heroin, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the antithesis of my generation, which were, you know, acid heads and everything was fast. Yeah. But my parents, everything was like, hey, my man, so um, how'd you do on that math test today? <laughs> um, you know, long division is actually not that complicated. You know, that's how my pop. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> hmm. And and so who were your earliest musical influences when you were growing up? Oh, my God. Um, Miles Davis, Clifford Brown, Max Roach, Nina Simone, Gloria Lynn, Thelonious Monk, Eric Dolphy. I lived in a modern jazz world. That was it. And then because of uh, studying music in school, it was classical music. So um, I became aware of Prokofiev and a lot of the Russian composers because their music um, seemed to be the music that either was just part of the curriculum. um, I don't know if it had to do with copyright law. I don't know what it was, but Mm -hmm. that's what they seemed to teach a lot. Mm -hmm. And then we learned... 
um, how influential Johann Sebastian Bach was. And uh, and then we started to get more into 12-tone stuff and chromaticism. And, and by the time I was maybe 9 or 10, I was aware of how every music, uh, how every instrument in the symphony orchestra function. So later on, when I became a professional musician and disco was the thing, I could orchestrate. So we were truly a self-contained band. Like the the moniker of self-contained band was a big important thing after the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Prior to the Beatles, most people got their music from other writers. After the Beatles, it was important to play your instruments, write your own songs, um, and in our case, we also did our own orchestration, which even the Beatles didn't do. So there, there, Paul. <laughs> no, he, he and I are friends now, so he, he gets it. I, I always jab him with that one. Right. And were you learning all of that um, musical education in public school? In public school, wow. absolutely. And there were also remedial um, uh, institutions um, because of growing up in... Well, see, the other part of my story was... When we were when we lived in the West Village, as they call it now, in the old days it was just the village. You started on the Lower East Side. And right, then, right. Yeah. And so, then you moved to the West Village. Right. Okay. And, and then whenever we would do poorly, we'd have to move back to the Lower East Side or the East Village. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically East Eighth Street, which was a great street to live on because it was a main sort of thoroughfare and, and um and they had a lot of remedial um uh, programs that were designed to, I guess, uh, help Eastern Europeans assimilate into American society. So by the time I grew up, those people had assimilated. So the beneficiaries of those programs, which didn't go away right away, were the blacks and the Puerto Ricans that were now living in those neighborhoods. They were no longer Eastern Europeans, really. Like huh. I never saw people, you know, even though my mom spoke Yiddish and stuff like that, it's because they work um, for the Jewish community that were, you know, have in the garment district and the garment industry and things like that. Yeah. And it, it's amazing to me how closely aligned the Jewish and black uh, communities were at the time when I was a kid. There was almost... No, like I said, my mom speaks perfect Yiddish. Colin Powell, who went to school with uh, my uncle, speaks perfect Yiddish. Yeah. I mean, that was a thing. How's your Yiddish? Terrible. When I, I like I, no, I rebelled. So they were beatniks, hippies. We were on a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you end up with Sesame Street? Tell me about that. Um, Sesame Street was funny. Um, I. Uh, so I was studying classical guitar, um, and uh, at that time, my teacher, my private tutor, wanted me to go to Juilliard because they had just started that year what they called the extension division. And since the guitar is not part of the symphony orchestra, they were teaching these other classes uh, that weren't necessarily symphonic. Um but uh, another school uptown, Manhattan School of Music, which was the former Juilliard campus, um, had been teaching guitar for a number of years. So I went to Juilliard one day and hung out there, and it was cool. But then uh, maybe even it was that same day I went up to Manhattan School of Music, 
And for some reason, it was more comfortable. There were musicians there that I had known, um, jazz musicians from the community that I had worked with. And I looked at the bulletin board. And in those days, they had index cards and they would post them on the bulletin board, um, you know, looking for apartments and gigs and whatever. And I'll never forget in those days, when you were looking for a band, you described almost every musical genre. You would say... Um, looking for a guitar player who's into The Dead, uh, Hendrix, uh, Fairport Convention, James Brown, uh, I mean, just every, it was all over the map. Just so you could make sure they had range or because everybody (laughs) liked everything? I don't know. I think it was because everybody really did like everything. Yeah. Um, Or they just wanted to make sure that whatever they composed, you could do. I I, I honestly don't know. Or maybe it made you look hipper or something. (laughs) But, um, so I answered um, an index card on the bulletin board, and I went and I auditioned, and the first song that we played uh, was Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood, which was an interesting song to me because I didn't know who I mean, so I sight-read it perfectly, and they just hired me, boom, like right on the spot. They're like, wow, you can read that? <laughs> guitar players are notoriously bad music readers, huh. but because of my history... I was a pretty efficient music reader. And while you were with Sesame Street, you formed the Big Apple Band, which would eventually become Chic with Bernard Edwards. Can you talk about meeting him and and how you started? Yeah, so I met Bernard um, sort of around the same time. Um, I, uh, I was what we would officially call a runaway I left home around 14 years old. Mm. Um, I've always had a job. I got my first job at nine years old. I read a book uh, by the Mar- one of the Marx brothers called Harpo Speaks. And he talked about getting a job at nine years old. I thought, well, <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. So I'm going to get a job. What did you? What job did you get? I was working in the Lower East Side. So I worked for Gus the Pickle King. Huh. Um, uh, and my uncle, because he worked for... Um, a person named Leopold Zippin. Like, the Lower East Side was very, very Jewish. That was, like, the thing. So, you know, we... So, Gus the Pickle King, Leopold Zippin, those guys. And they were always cool when it came to hiring kids because um, I guess it was just the tradition. The kids would do the sort of manual labor jobs where they could pay us almost nothing. Yeah. To us, we were making a fortune. <laughs> um and it was fun, and we got to, I learned how to make pickles early and stuff like that, and, and it was just a great, fun existence. And um, so I had always worked, so, so when I decided to run away from home at 14, it was just because it, my, you know, my mom, who I think is a real saint, she's like almost like a soldier, a total mm-hmm. survivor, at that time, her heroin habit uh, was pretty out of control, and I felt like my uh, apartment, like living with my mom, was dangerous because every time I would buy a guitar, I'd scrape up the money to get a guitar, mm-hmm. one of her sort of degenerate type of boyfriends would steal my guitar and sell it. Yeah. So it was like, okay, I'm getting out of this place. And, and I felt comfortable living on the subway. 
And when you ran away, did you keep in touch with your parents? Or oh, did yeah. You, yeah. My, mom, my mom and I are tight. Uh, you know, unfortunately, now she's suffering from Alzheimer's. Oh, I'm and, sorry. Um, and I have her living in a memory care center. But, man, we are so close now. We, I've seen my mom over the last three years more than I've seen her since I was 14 years old. Mm. I mean, I'd see her oh, every time I get a chance to go and visit her, I go see her. That's great. So back to starting Chic. Yeah, How- sorry. Oh, right. I went off course That's there. okay. Your Honor, I... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Order in the court. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I went off topic, Your Honor. Um, yeah, so during it was during that time of me being a runaway and and always having a job, um, I would do these pickup gigs on the weekend. And uh, one of my great friends, a really terrific jazz guitar player, he called me to substitute for him for one gig because he had a gig paying more money. So he gave me the cheap gig and he took the expensive gig. Very common practice in the old days. <laughs> so I took the cheap gig. And, and, and how old are you at this point? I would say 18 mm-hmm. or so, maybe 19. Because the, the thing is, is that it, you're, you were playing in places that were serving alcohol. Right. Um, sometimes they would look the other way. And it was, you know, it was a mafia place. But uh, I don't think they wanted to have minors in the band. But I could have been 17. But I was around 17, 18, 19, somewhere in that neighborhood. And um, I got to the gig late because my friend called me at the last minute. Um, and I ran into the club, and I still, I can see it, just as if it were yesterday. They were playing a song called Sissy Strut in the key of C. And I ran, and I plugged in my big jazz box and plugged in, and do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
And I said, what kind of thing in this place? You know, they they never came out and said, you know, they can't have an interracial couple or whatever. Um, wow. And a girl with a super sexy low-cut dress, and she's white and your girlfriend. So they fired me. I couldn't believe it. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> yeah. New York City. Wow. <laughs> so, what, so then what happened? Now, well, you- what happened was Bernard had said to me the week prior that he never wanted to do a gig without me, and I had said exactly the same thing to him because we had this magical connection Mm -hmm. instantly. So not only did we become the impromptu band leaders right there on the spot, uh, but we also loved the way that we complimented each other's playing. And um, that uh, never went away. Our entire lives, we always had that magical thing. As a matter of fact, every person that we've ever hired who's worked for us, they say, man, as soon as you two guys start playing, it sounds like Chic. Hmm. And did you know at the time that Chic was going to go the distance? Did you see that going on forever? It wasn't even Chic. We, yeah. we, didn't even, we didn't call ourselves Chic. We called ourselves, at that time, we called ourselves the Boys, B-O-I-Z. And we were trying to be a black rock and roll band because our lead singer... Um, had just finished doing Jesus Christ Superstar, and he was playing the role of Judas, so he had that mega voice. And um, and basically, we were, we were like a little bit more progressive version of Journey. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought that would work. And every single record company that we visited, every one, they kept our tapes. They were fascinated with our compositions. They loved it. But as soon as they saw that we were all black with sort of one white-looking guy in the band who was actually Puerto Rican, but <laughs> but he looked white, so they talked to him. Like, he was a leader, and he would go, look, I just joined the band. Those guys are the brains behind this, and they would never sign us. I mean, and we, I mean the building we're sitting in right now, it's, well, it wasn't here, but Atlantic Records, I yeah. cannot tell you how many times Atlantic Records turned us down. Wow. <laughs> it was actually 24 times. Who's counting? <laughs> right, but who's counting? Uh-huh. Um, and at one point, you opened up for the Jackson Five, right? Was that, yeah, that was that was, your first taste of stardom? Um, well, we weren't stars. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're opening for the Jackson yeah. Five, you are not stars. <laughs> um, we were once again we were a substitute band. The band that really had the gig was the OJ's, and um, so because we had a hit record, we were now. Um, we were now calling ourselves the Big Apple Band when we played R&B shows, and that's because the group that we backed was called New York City. They had a big hit record called I'm Doing Fine Now, written by the genius Tom Bell. I'm doing fine now, without you, baby. So that was their big record. And we'd come out and we'd kill, and they'd do the steps and the whole bit. Um, and, and that worked for us for a couple of years and they released their second album, which didn't net any hits, but the band by now had built our own reputation. When New York City didn't get a gig, the Big Apple band, we'd get a gig as a covers band and we would play, you know, everything that was hot on the charts and we'd play them well. Um, so when New York City officially broke up, um... I, uh, uh, they, they, they broke up while we were in England. We did our last show in, in, uh, the UK, 
and somehow my passport and wallet were stolen. So all my money, the whole gig was for nothing for me. <laughs> I had no oh. money, no passport. And, but I did have a girlfriend, and that was important <laughs> because I had a place to stay. All you need is love. Exactly. And, uh, and I hung out with her over the weekend, and she took me to see her favorite band, which was called Roxy Music. And I had never seen anything like Roxy Music in my life. I thought it was the most incredible thing, a magical experience. And I called Bernard, and I said, man, I've just seen... Uh, the way I explained it was a completely, um, it was a completely immersive artistic experience in music. That's how I saw it. It felt like when you go to a museum, but now there was a museum with the music that accompanied the, mm-hmm. the objects and the people in the museum look like the right, it was just perfect. Mm. And I said, man, we got to do the black version of that. Mm. And he was he still didn't know what the hell I was talking about, <laughs> but that was what was great about Bernard and myself um because I was uh, this sort of super hippie guy who he liked because I was a hippie, and he loved translating my vision into r and b so I was like, "Oh wow, man, you know like Roxy music men, they're fantastic, man they, you know, yeah, right, bro." <laughs> <laughs> And you had such great success with songs like Le Freak and Good Times. Le Freak was Atlantic Records' only triple platinum selling single at the time. Can you talk about your songwriting process with Bernard? Um, well, that one is a really unique one because Le Freak was atypical of our style of, of writing. Uh, we had been invited to... Uh, Studio 54, um, and it was 1977 going into 78. It was New Year's Eve, and Grace Jones was going to be the entertainment. Now, we're pre- we were pretty old school and young journeymen at the time, so we wanted to be professional. We wanted to get there early. Now that Grace Jones is one of my best friends in life, she is habitually late for everything. We had no idea at the time. We So we were trying to be professional. She told us to come to the back door and tell them that we were personal friends of Grace Jones. Now, we had never, we didn't meet her. Um, we had only spoken to her on the phone, and she had a very unusual accent. And we thought that we were supposed to pretend to sound like that because we didn't believe that a person really spoke that way. Mm-hmm. To us, it sounded like she was a cross between Bella Lugosi, uh, Marlena Dietrich, and Bob Marley. She was like, so uh, what you have to do is you go to the back door and you tell them that you are personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. <laughs> and I mean, that's what it sounded like to us. You know, yeah. We're speaking, to, oh my God, it's Grace Jones, the first time. So we knock on the back door, and you got to imagine that the music inside was so loud how can the person hear us knocking? So we're banging and kicking the door. And he opens the, the door with an attitude. And we say, hey, hello, we're personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. And the guy tells us, he slams the door in our faces and says, ah, oh, F off. And we said, well, no, 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 no. This is a true story. Because that's what she told us to do. We were just repeating what she told us to do. And we somehow got his attention again by kicking louder. And uh, and he repeated the same thing. Ah, oh, F off. So uh, 
uh, I conveniently lived one block away from the back door of Studio 54. Hmm. And on our way back to my apartment, since it was clear that we weren't going to get in that night, we stopped off at a liquor store and decided to have our own New Year's Eve party. And we bought two bottles of Dom Perignon, which we used to call rock and roll mouthwash. And, uh, and we downed those two bottles very quickly and got buzzy real fast. And we started singing what the doorman had said. Ah, F off. F Studio 54. F off. And we were getting into it because we were high. Now we were buzzing and we were laughing and we were having the time of our lives because Bernard and I were best friends and we found each other's company just delightful. It was hilarious. I mean, people quite often would wonder how we ever got anything done because we're in the studio just laughing all the time. Mm -hmm. So we were cracking up and cracking up and then finally Bernard said, he pulled his glasses down over the bridge of his nose and said, "Uh, my man, you you know this uh, shit is happening. And this is, you know, two years before hip hop. I'm like going, Bernard, we're not going to be able to get uh, F off on the radio. So we changed that to a euphemism uh, of the other word, the other F word, and we changed it to freak off. And no matter how many times we sang freak off, it just wasn't happening. It was just like, uh. and then boom, my hippie roots kicked in and I went, oh man, freak out. Like, you know, when you have a bad acid trip, man, and you like freak out. And Bernard looked at me like I was from outer space. <sighs> and then I quickly got my black card together and I said no man you know like when you see a fine girl and you're freaking out on the dance floor and then Bernard boom light bulb moment he went and that new dance that my kids are doing called the freak (laughs) and I went whoa (laughs) and uh, we went out and we bought two records that were about dancing a specific dance uh, Chubby Checker the twist and Joey D and the Starlighters Peppermint Twist and we came back home we listened to it over and over again and both songs talked about a dance both songs were very famous and neither song told you how to do the dance since we didn't know how to do the dance that's what we did we used that as a blueprint huh fascinating and how did that compare to the typical way you guys would write together what was your general approach um our general approach approach was not nearly as interesting as that our general <laughs> approach was I would mainly write um, the main motifs uh, because I've always been a bachelor. I was single at the time. Bernard had a family. He went home at a decent hour and slept. I went out and partied all night. Um, So I would write just tons and tons of songs. And typically the next day when I would play it for Bernard, he would then arrange it and go, phew. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what were you smoking last night? This is, you know, you, you've written 15 songs here and you're calling it one song. We can take it apart and make a whole album out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And in hip hop's infancy, the Sugar Hill Gang used Sheik's track, Good Times, which was not the last time the track would be sampled, and it became a legal issue, and you ended up getting a songwriting credit. How did you feel in those early days about sampling? Um, well, so, you know, that sounds like a big conceptual problem, but this all happened in rather quickly. Um, when I first heard it, this was something that we were already doing, actually. We, we as a band, um, used to go into the recording studio because our best friend owned a recording studio, and, and the 12-inch record had just come into existence and a lot of songs that were popular didn't have extended versions so as a band we'd go in and play breakdowns cut them in the middle of the record and then sell them to djs so Mm -hmm. we were accustomed to hearing these sort of bootleggy things so when i first heard rapper's delight i actually thought that the dj from the club was inside the booth rapping over some tracks that they made, which to me was a common thing. It wasn't weird until I looked at the <laughs> in the booth and there was no one in the booth. And the guy was standing next to me drinking a split of champagne. Uh-huh. I'm like going, now, I know a lot about DJ culture. The only time you can leave the booth is when you have the reel-to-reel tape running and uh-huh. it's going to give you enough time to go to the bathroom and stuff. Or you have a 12-inch that's a really long song and you better hope it doesn't skip. Um, And I looked at the guy and I said, what the hell is that? He said, that's a record I just bought this afternoon up in Harlem. Yeah, it's a record. Let me me see it. And I looked at the label and I'm like, where's my name? (laughs) Because the strings... The strings on on rappers to like I could tell were strings that I had orchestrated and conducted and you know that you know what your work sounds like so I said that's copyright infringement I I can't take the movie Star Wars which was popular at the time and make a music video out of the bar scene in Star Wars just because I like it yeah um, so I said you can't do that that's serious copyright infringement if, if people could do that hell we'd never have to man if I, I i could if i could take a george benton record and take his solo and put it on my record i'd be a monster so um uh we tracked down the the owners and 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 we came to um an amicable um you know conclusion <laughs> rather quickly but it was it was it was dangerous times and we were treading on thin ice and um but it all got sorted out and everything worked out great now um just two nights ago we played rappers of light with a guy who actually really wrote it <laughs> that's great <laughs> and then you became an in-demand producer thanks to your work with chic can you talk about that transition and and do you like what do you like doing more? Do you like writing or producing more? I always say this because it's really true. I always like doing 
what I'm not doing the most. <laughs> so if I'm gigging, I wish I were in the studio writing. If I'm in the studio writing, I go, geez, I can't wait till the next gig. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I'm solely producing, which, believe it or not, let I, you know, let's finally be really honest. When I produce a record, I am the co-writer. I don't just go, I don't just sit back and go, mm-hmm, okay, okay, okay. I actually contribute musically and... I would say 99%, which is a huge number because I've done thousands of recordings. Um, 99% of the records that I produce, I play on as well. Hmm. So even if the band has a guitar player or even two, like in the case of In Excess, I still play. Mm-hmm. Is there any artist that you haven't worked with that you would like to or that you would have liked to if- yeah, the, my biggest lament when it comes to not working with someone um, is Miles Davis. He and I became friendly um, because we did a fashion shoot together for the Japanese um, designer Issei Miyake. And, um, and on that session, we became really good friends. It was so much fun. And, you know, when I was a kid... Miles was sort of in my parents' circle, but he was a superstar, so not a lot. He, we didn't, I didn't see Miles a lot. So now that I'm older and have carved out my own musical lane, if you will, to now meet Miles Davis and we're sort of on equal footing was amazing. And he would say to me, Now, uh, I want you to write me. He would, he, he, I, I mean... Can I curse, guys? I can. <laughs> out there, well, here's what Miles would say. Nah, I want you to write me a motherfucking good times. <laughs> and I'm looking at him going, now, you, you had, all your life you had heard about these stories of Miles, you know, berating people and saying, man, man, man you can start by, you know, like that's Miles' reputation. But I actually never saw that side of him. He was always amazing and cool and fun. And he used to, he gave me his phone number the first night we met and he used to tell me to call him all the time. And we wound up living one block away from each other for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. But every time we would go out, he would finally get to some point in, in the evening and say, nah, I want you to write me a motherfucking good times. And I kept thinking to myself, this is Miles Davis. You want good times? And I didn't realize until after he passed away and then I heard him do covers of Michael Jackson songs and stuff that Miles wanted a hit record. You know, Herbie Hancock had already, you know, come up with hit records and he, so he was still the great jazz pianist but now Herbie had crossed over into the pop R&B world and he was highly revered in all circles and that was probably something that Miles and most of us want the, you know when you're an artist a performing artist what you care about is communicating you know, you want people to hear your art form. You don't want to just write for this small group of people or else we'd stay just working in clubs. Why record it? Just just do live gigs. Um, and that broke my heart to think that Miles actually wanted a hit and he believed that I could have given it to him mm-hmm. and that I didn't take him seriously and I didn't do it because I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want him to go, man, you think I want to play that bullshit? Because yeah. you know? <laughs> I was waiting for that moment, which never happened. Uh, I kept writing sort of, you know, like avant-garde 
not really that avant-garde, but fusion type of jazz songs that had good melodies and were catchy. And he would go, man, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need you to do that. I can do that. <laughs> and he would say this all the time. I can do that. Marcus can do that. Meaning, meaning his bass player, Marcus Miller, who was his producer. Man, I can do that. Marcus can do that. I want me a motherfucking good times. Mm -hmm. And I just never did. And that's all... I, I can't fix that. Yeah. What's the difference between writing for yourself and writing for somebody else? Um, I feel a greater responsibility um, to the other person to try and give them a song that's going to communicate to the masses. Um, I When I'm composing for myself, I believe that Hit records are a byproduct of these other forces out there in the universe that you can't control. You just have to do the best job you can, be true to yourself, and then hopefully the label can somehow do the things that they do, that magical thing that gets that record out to the people. Um, if I worry too much about that part of it, I would not. I would be insane because <laughs> I've done thousands of records that are mostly flops. Um, but I love them. My, my my flops are, I think, some of my best records ever. Mm. Uh, Al Jarreau, Teddy Pendergrass, Carly Simon, Debbie Harry. These are amazing records. I mean, they're phenomenal. I, you know, I don't know why they weren't hits. Matter of fact, I remember when I finished the song Why with Carly Simon, mm -hmm. I thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever done because... I had just been introduced to dancehall reggae, and I was like, going, well, we're going to do the chic version of dancehall reggae with Carly Simon, what? And we went to the number one rock and roll station that allowed us to DJ for the day, and they told us that we could play anything we want. And we said, fantastic, we got Carly Simon. And they said, uh, we don't support her at this station. And I was like, what? <laughs> I grew up listening to WNEWFM, and everything was Carly Simon, and you're so vain. And they were like, we don't support it. I was like, what did she do? <laughs> and they wouldn't let us play our record with wow. Carly Simon. The record became a big hit in England. We play Why in England, and it's just like playing We Are Family. Huh. We play it in America. People look at us like, "What? what is that? Yeah. Do you Have you ever had times where you've had writer's block? No. <laughs> when it really? comes to music, yeah. no. Wow. Uh, writer's block when I was writing my autobiography, yes. <laughs> but that uh, that wasn't really writer's block. That was just how do I formulate the story. Um, the reason why I don't have writer's block when it comes to music is because I write about... Uh, everything I write about is nonfiction. So I can just look at you and write a song. Now, don't get me wrong... That doesn't mean it's going to be a good song, yeah. but it will be a but song. It it'll have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you know, a bridge, and it'll make sense. And and I really can write about anything. I can write about the pattern of the rug and the the amplifier over there, or the microphone, or the walls, or the lights, even any anything in the room, anything I see, a glass of water. I could write in my mind. I could write a wonderful song about a glass of water. Did you have a songwriting teacher or anyone who gave you mm -mm. advice or wisdom that has helped you? Nope. I only had um, uh, an orchestration teacher uh, that taught me the fundamentals of how um, ensembles worked. 
But you got to remember, I also was growing up in the time of jazz fusion, and it was all about learning the rules and breaking the rules. So when Chic first started and everybody had those big, gigantic orchestrations like, um, you know, Barry White and Isaac Hayes and um, Curtis Mayfield, even though we had orchestration, we did the antithesis of those big, gigantic... You never heard... Well, our first single, Dance, 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 had a little bit of a... But we never whipped out the the 30-second note triplets or any, any of that kind of stuff. That wasn't our thing. Uh, and we purposely didn't do uh, the the hi-hat pattern. That was a standard disco. Pss, 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 that doesn't exist on any chic record. Mm-hmm. And we were purposely trying to make um, a s- different style of dance music that could not be classified as disco. It should have been our form of R&B that you just dance to. We didn't want it to be like, we didn't want to be like Silver Convention or, you know, or even disco acts that we loved. But that was not our thing. We were really trying to be more like uh, a Cool in the Gang or an Earth, Wind & Fire, but concentrating more on European dance music. Mm Mm-hmm. You've always been on the forefront of new music and, and new genres. What? How do you discover new music today? Or what? How do you listen to it? Where do you listen? Well, e- it's easy do? now. Now it's <laughs> right. Now I just look at my Instagram and somebody goes, "Yo, now check this out." So I hear new stuff all the time. I run into artists all the time. I'm now the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, so I am in contact with. New songwriters, old songwriters, um, middle-aged songwriters, just just everybody. So my world is filled with artistic people, with composers from like on on every level. I, I uh, uh, there, you know, right now I'm working on the film Cats with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and. Um, you know, so that's a totally different experience. Imagine you're working with a person and, you know, I never, you know, I never was really into Andrew Lloyd Webber, particularly, you know, when I was a kid, Jesus Christ Superstar, of course, if you're a hippie, you got to see Jesus Christ Superstar and hair. But uh, I also checked out Evita, but that was it. I didn't see Cats. I didn't see, you know, Starlight. It was just not my thing. It was like, Wow, it's too commercial for me. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm working with Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, he's a genius. He's unbelievable. I mean, like uh, every time I'm in his presence, we sit around and we are, you know, shooting the bull. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we can talk all night. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it's nonstop. I, I love the guy. I mean, it's it's, it's incredible. We we're getting ready to take a vacation together. It's like we can't get enough of each other. So, um, you, you know, I uh, I'm I, at this point in my life, I'm around so many artists with so many things to contribute to the culture that in a really strange way, I, I feel somewhat overwhelmed because I want to do the best job for each person. And uh, I did um, a sort of seminar last night, and a person talked about, you know, uh, 
the problem in today's world is that there's too much music to consume. There's too much music to listen to. And I said, well, I grew up in movie theaters. I didn't really go to school. I went to, I cut school to go to movies every day. And I said, and I look at Netflix now and I'm like overwhelmed. I can't figure, it's too much stuff to, to watch everything. I said, but obviously that's the right environment because we now have enough music and enough media to cons- to interest a huge amount of uh, groups that uh, have an affinity with these composers and these artists that you may not uh, normally come in contact with. So I actually think it's a good thing that we have this preponderance of a massive amount of compositions and artists and things to listen to. It's wonderful. How many different projects or artists are you working with at any given time? What's your typical week like? Oh, my God. I would say in the last year, I've worked on over a hundred songs easy easy i mean easy and and uh, a couple of years ago before avici passed away holy cow it was insane you put the two of us in a room and we could write 30 songs in a few days Mm. um so i um i I, you know i I just came off of a, a year of songwriting with more artists than you can ever imagine. And it's interesting because today's world is so different now because I never really um, just wrote singles before. Like, that wasn't the world I grew up in. I grew up in the artistic world of the album. The album was the film, and the single was the trailer. And I had to help you conceptualize and actualize that album so it's weird to write a song Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like to me writing a song is like doing a television commercial or something or even when i've scored films and and write the songs inside the film i still get to do the score as well so i'm doing the whole project um you know when i write just let your soul glow i also write you know, I'm writing, you know, all of that stuff. So I feel like I'm doing the whole musical package, not just a song here and a song there. So it's strange that lately people call me to be part of this new world where you have, you know, 30 songwriters on an album. It's like, whoa, that's that's strange to me and I'll go in a room with five people sometimes and we come up with a song or two or three or four at the end of the day and how does that change the experience is it harder to write with more people in the room not at all no it's it's just the same it's nothing nothing feels different it's Mm. the same I I am incredibly malleable I will bend to fit the situation and fit the scenario rather than to try and make them do things my way um, I mean, I'm 67 years old. My way is really old school. I'd rather just sit down by myself. I don't need anyone in the room and just do it. And then I'll play you what I've done and then you can contribute. That's my most natural way. But because I've had to be in the room with a person like Madonna who believes that her compositions are all right and perfect the day she <laughs> plays them for me. And I go, uh... 
Not really, but when we finish, they will be. And, you know, and you got to prove it to that person. You got to really show them. And, and that's what I've always loved, showing a person that if I can't improve the project, if I can't be an addition to this, why am I even working on the record? Like, if, if it's already perfect in your mind, what the hell you need me for? If I can't add something musical to it, if I can't make it better than it was before... You don't need me. You need a different producer. Mm -hmm. You won three Grammys for your work with Daft Punk on Random Access Memories in 2014. Do Grammys still matter? Um, Of course Grammys matter, but I, I think all awards matter on some level because you're being recognized by someone other than your parents going, mm-hmm. hey, look at that. My boy's over there in the corner playing a song. Um, so it is some other community um, that's recognizing yourself. It's some collective body that's saying, to us, you deserve a special thanks. Um, uh, but I never... Did this? I never started to do this be- to win awards. I guarantee you, I'm, I'm shocked whenever I get some kind of award and it's like some big mega thing, and I sit there and I'm going, really? Like you're telling me that you're gonna give me a spot in the Smithsonian Institute for my guitar between John Coltrane's horn and <laughs> and Duke Ellington's piano or something. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this this is insane. And I mean, I feel like these type of things, I get these letters and I go, wow, these are great honors. And it feels amazing to me, but it's almost like I don't believe it. It feels sort of like a dream because... One, that wasn't my ambition. I wasn't trying to do that. So I don't feel like, ah, I finally did what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. All I was really trying to do was get a hit record and make a living. I had no idea that We Are Family 40 years later would still be like a relevant composition in the world. Like it means something. Yeah. Do you think songwriters get enough recognition at the Grammys? Um, Well... Why pick on the Grammys? Well, <laughs> Songwriting. <in general. laughs> no, Good I think. Point. Look, the, the, look. I think that composers have always been very anonymous. It, it usually takes time for people to learn who composers are. Uh, and I, I always use this as an example. I said, you know, if Bruno Mars wrote a hit record for you right now and it came out the next day and it was happening and blah, 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 and everybody thought it was amazing, if Bruno Mars wasn't in the video, you wouldn't even know Bruno Mars wrote the song. Um, and that's how, uh, uh, that's how anonymous composers are. I mean, someone as big and as popular as Bruno could do it and you wouldn't even know he did it unless he was in the video or they made a big deal as featuring Bruno Mars, whatever. Um, you know, random access memories. I was very involved in that record, but after a while, um, I guess the, the, the random access memories are a little bit different because I was in the video, and and sometimes people walk up to me and go, "Hey, you're Daft Punk," because people don't realize that if a kid was twelve or thirteen years old at the time, and they saw basically Pharrell and myself, and they see this cool 
video with these two robots, they think Pharrell and I are Daft Punk and the robots are just cool props like dancers in your video. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that they're Daft Punk and we're like the stand-in guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's so funny. It is funny because I get it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have any frustrations with the music industry? Mm, My biggest frustration is uh, the way that the... pie is divided. Mm -hmm. I think that songwriters and songwriting, and it's not just because I'm the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but I think that songs are the foundation of our business. Without songs, you have no music business. And we are somehow on the lowest rung of the ladder. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. If Bob Dylan didn't write once upon a time, you know, and he was just Bob Dylan, a cool guy, singing someone else's songs. It'd be well, he'd still be singing songs. The fact is, you must sing a song, a composition that has a beginning, a middle, and an end that can be marketed in the systems that we have, and whatever those systems happen to be, where now it's streaming. Um, still, you have to have songs that are the main product that's being promoted through the, that uh, distribution mechanism. So I believe that songwriters are just paid an unfortunately... It's just, it's just not fair. They, you know, when, when I first started in the music business, I didn't make a big deal out of it because I grew up in an era where to get signed... You had to be the songwriter. I didn't I didn't know any bands that didn't write their own music. So we were the beneficiaries of not only did we have our publishing and our songs that we we owned either fully or some portion we did deals, but we had the benefit of going out to perform those songs. So we were making money there and we were getting the performance royalties and we were getting um you know, the mechanical royalty, you know, for the records. And, you know, so there were different tranches of money that made life uh, very, very uh, livable. And I remember that bands that didn't sell huge amount of records still were doing great. I mean, you didn't have to have uh, the number one record. If you were in the top 40, if you go back and look at the Billboard charts, if you looked at the top 40, almost every record had a gold star. That They were all, you know, gold records. They mm-hmm. were, and then you'd see platinum, like, whoa. You know, so it was, like, <laughs> was like, man. But, that, you know, once you got past the top 20 or the top 10, then all of a sudden they became platinum. So you went from the little dot to the star, you know, uh, or whatever the symbol was at the time. And we're talking a million and two million if we're talking, you know, albums. Uh, I mean, if we're talking singles, if we're talking albums, we're talking 500,000 to a million. And once you passed a couple of million, I mean, you were doing amazing. And plus you were a songwriter. So it didn't feel like there needed to be um, a different type of, uh, di- di- you know, distribution of wealth. It felt equitable because you were making so much money um, during the live performances. And record companies had a very valid point saying that they were spending a lot of money to promote you, to get your image out there, to do whatever they had to do to me. Now, the interesting thing is that it's funny. I always say the record business is the only business where 
after you pay off the mortgage, they still own the house. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a minute, we've paid back all the money, blah, 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 but you still own the record. How is that possible? Yeah. Um, so, um, but we didn't really complain. It, all, it felt fine because we were the people creating the music and we were making a lot of money. Now, when we're writing a song and I'm doing a song with five people, and and it's a single and I'm not doing the whole album, wow, everything is really different. Now, in my life, it doesn't make a difference because the bulk of my catalog, I'm the, the sole person who's the only producer, uh, the only co-songwriter or the, you know, whatever. I'm the, the one guy. Mm-hmm. It's me and David Bowie or it's me and Duran Duran or it's me and Madonna and I have a lot of those in the pipeline. Um, And I believe some of those that weren't popular at the time, at any given moment in the future, it could be like um, uh, when, um, what was the music? And they were like seriously headbanging in the car. And I remember Peter Paterno had done the deal just for the recordings and not the publishing and everybody, what, what was happening? Wayne's World. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden... They do that one shot in the film, and the next thing you know, the guy looks like a genius. Like, okay, great, everybody's going out and buying, you know. So, um, it, you know, it, it, it's it's um, it, the the world is constantly changing, and I think that the rules are going to start to reflect this new reality and this new reality of these multiple songwriters on on you know these hit records because you know today's world um the vibe that i feel from most artists is that they're not as concerned with the artistic message and and i don't mean this as some uh, as some absolutist statement i'm just saying in general the vibe i feel is that they're not as concerned with the artistic message as they are with the fame part of it and I understand it. The fame part looks now more exciting. It's being promoted more. You know, you you know, it, it took a long time in the old days before we learned the stuff that we learn about an artist now in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see how the fame part and the lifestyle feels more exciting. And people are attracted to that more than they are delivering a message. And, and as I said, this is not an absolutist statement. It just means in general. So when I grew up, people were much more concerned about the message and the art form, and the fame was a byproduct of doing that job really well and having your label and everybody do that convergence thing that somehow happens and gives you a hit. Um, But because of the way that it is now, and it's all about the fame game for the most part, uh, writers have to be paid better because if you're going to split that pot four or five ways, yeah, if you get a big hit record, sure, it's a lot of money, but still it's not like when I was coming up, you're not, <laughs> it's not like, I mean, what I get paid to do We Are Family is, uh, was pretty serious. Yeah. Um, last question. You were recently named chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame what does that mean and what do you want to do in that role? So what I, the main reason why I took that position, um, and I said this uh, at our first meeting that I chaired, I said, you know, I've always looked at 
pop music um, under the broad category of rock and roll. It's just all rock and roll to me. And typically what that means is that once you get a hit record, you and, you know, I'm old school, so once you got into the top 40, that meant you crossed over. It didn't mean if it was... You could, you could have had a record like Convoy or you could have had a record like Disco Duck. But once it hit top 40, bang, it was rock and roll. Who cares if they're going, now rubber ducky, we got a great big convoy, or disco, disco, whatever, boom, you hit top 40, you're rock and roll. That's it. And to me, once you had those big rock and roll songs, whatever they were, those compositions, I always thought that they were, were clever. I learned to respect that cleverness. I learned to respect that ability to get, as my teacher said to me one day, he was really berating me when I was putting down the, the top single in America at the time. He said to me, Nah, what makes you think you're the ultimate consumer? So you just said that that was a lousy composition, but meanwhile, it's been number one for like six weeks. So you know more then all those millions of people, and I was like, whoops. And I went home, and two weeks later, I wrote, everybody dance, do-do-do-do, clap your hands. <laughs> so it was funny, because I was, he was my jazz teacher. Mm. And, and he taught me that, how to respect hit records, and he said it so profoundly. He said, I, I said, well, why would you call, we were talking about the record by the Archies, Sugar Sugar. I said, why would you call that a great composition? And he says, um, because any record that's in the top 40 is a great composition. Mm -hmm. I says, you got to be kidding me. He says, no. I said, why would you call that a great composition? He says, because it speaks to the souls of a million strangers. Hmm. And I went, whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was like my biggest music lesson in my, in my life. I wanted to speak and write music that spoke to the souls of a million strangers, people I never met would be touched by something. And that's what he taught me. That's what my purpose would be in life. And it was only after he said that to me. Before that, I was just writing and trying to get a gig. And I, I didn't necessarily think about the souls of a million strangers. Yeah. Now it's the souls of a couple of billion strangers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to do as chairman? Is there... So what I've been able to do and focus on is um, I, I took that job because um, I, 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 I thought to myself, songwriting is the one part of our business, even though we're pretty anonymous, I have never heard anybody say these two things. And believe me, I have heard every negative thing you could imagine. I turn in a record, man, the, the, the horrible stuff that they'll say about a song that I turn in, and next thing you know, it becomes a number one record. Like, so what were you saying? Uh, but I've never heard this, ever. I never heard a person say, I don't want to record that record. Um, I don't want to record that song because a woman wrote it, and I don't want to record that song because a black person wrote it. And I thought to myself, right away, an organization that has at least that. I've never heard that. So I'm already starting with um, a certain type of momentum towards the future that I want to help build. Now that I'm working with more 
women songwriters that have become technically proficient. I mean, you wouldn't believe the way they write. You know, some of these top liners write nowadays. Um, I, I'm amazed when they say that they don't need me. <laughs> it, it actually, it, I'm actually entertained. So like a 17-year-old girl, we're in there writing a song. It's like killing. And I'll say, okay, great. So you want to come in tomorrow and uh, and I'll help you fix up the vocal? And they go, oh, no, t- tomorrow I'll, it'll be done. I'll have it right. I'll, you know, it's like, whoa. They, they know how to work the gear. And I want those people that they may still be anonymous to the masses, but at least uh, at the end of my tenure, I want to be able to say, well, when I joined um, or when I became chairman, there were this amount of women who were um, major songwriters. When I left, there was this amount, and it should be measurable, and it should be a big deal. And it's not because I'm being super altruistic. I'm actually... I think it's just smart business. When I first uh, learned anything about the record business, my earliest uh, attorney said to me, well, let me break down some numbers to you, kid. Um, You know that women, uh, especially young teenage women, are the greatest consumers of music. And I said, really? He said, yeah, maybe. And I'm just making up a number now. But just to give an example, he says, it's about maybe 60% women and young girls and 40% men. Huh. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't it be 60% girls writing the songs because they know what they want to hear? It's like when I met Madonna, it was like she knew what, I mean, she was in tune. She was like, (laughs) they want to hear this. Papa don't preach. I'm having my baby like a virgin. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? Um, But she knew and... It proved my point. It was like, if well, if they're the main consumers, they should be the main writers. They know, they they have that fast lane into your heart. They know what you, you know. So to me, it was just smart business. And I had, I've always been trying to get women who are are in my immediate circle to write with me and collaborate. And sometimes they feel intimidated. Only. One wasn't really, and we, I formed a band with her. Who was that? Uh, her name was Felicia Collins, and she played with David Letterman for like 80 gazillion years. And she's amazing. She's in New York now um, doing her thing at Iridium, taking over uh, the great uh, Les Paul spot there. So, I mean, but uh, she was only one of the, I mean, she used to stand out in front of my apartment and wait for me every day. And finally I said, all right, come on in and let's play together. And then she was great and we formed a band. But most people uh, seem to be intimidated. I mean, I begged so many women. And now that they've grown up, you know, and it's, you know, 30, 40 years later, they go, damn, I'm sure so- sorry that I didn't take that gig with you. Man, I wish mm-hmm. I had. Well, I was begging you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, it was so great talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope I wasn't too all over the map. No, you were amazing. Thank you. Loved it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. 
If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.